Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, and here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and the present. And welcome to episode number 32 of the Foxy Podcast. On this week's show, I'm going to be airing an interview I conducted with music writer David Keenan from this past fall when he was in Minneapolis covering the Jandek performance for The Wire magazine. This was a concert that our station KMSU had a hand in organizing, and David's excellent exclusive face-to-face interview to come out of this has now, of course, been published in The Wire and with the second installment due out in this next month's edition. I sat down with David at the Hard Times Cafe on the morning after the Jandek show to discuss his work as a writer and his work with uh, Volcanic Tongue, the Glasgow-based record store and mail-order outlet that he runs with his wife and partner, Heather Lee, and also to get his thoughts on various aspects of underground music and culture. And in addition to this, David put together a great playlist of some of his favorite artists and tracks, uh, some of whom you'll hear come up throughout the course of our conversation. And we'll be playing these tracks throughout the show, not to mention that great piece from Richard Young's and Simon Wickham Smith called a song for the Spanish anarchists that we uh, started off the show with. And we never actually did discuss Jandek on that morning. Uh, kind of figured that his article would be sort of the definitive document on Jandek's work. But David did include the Jandek track, I Knew You Would Leave, from his 6 and 6 album uh, with his playlist. And I guess this was... Both he and uh, Sterling had cited this as being the, quote, Jandek masterpiece. So I'm going to start off by uh, playing that track before we jump into the first interview segment with David. And I should mention uh, that uh, some of the interview audio includes a little bit of uh, background music and other atmospheric bustle, being that we were in a cafe. But I think you'll uh, appreciate that, too. So uh, here again is Jandek's I Knew You Would Leave. Succumb 
not your own
for uh, many music critics that I've met over the years a lot of them got their start working in college radio or writing for zines and, and things like that where did you get that initial impulse to write about music or maybe just to write in general and, and where were some of those early places that you cut your teeth as a writer um well I mean I was always pretty bookish I was a big book collector from when I was a kid I was very into science fiction science fiction and comics and I think from being a f- there was a great fandom around science fiction so I guess I started picking up on science fiction and comic fanzines 
And that certainly got me very... I really like... I've always been a fan of this, yeah, the DIY aspect of that. And I think through science fiction and comic fandom, picking up the fanzines there, got me interested in DIY publishing. And then I began discovering music fanzines. Purely because I liked fanzines more than I was in like, a music at the time. I mean, I was, when I was a kid, I was in like, science fiction, heavy metal, astronomy. Just total geekdom, basically, yeah. on every level, you know? Yeah. But um, I remember at the time Virgin Records in, in Glasgow stopped... They had a massive fanzine section. So if you had a fanzine, you could just go in and they would stock it. So I just began buying fanzines because I liked the look of them, I liked the smell of them, I liked the, the, the DIY aspect of them. And then I began reading about underground music in there, specifically stuff that was happening in Glasgow at the time, like um, the Pastels. Yeah. Uh, the Vaselines had just formed. And other general underground music in the UK at the time. So. I got into buying the fanzines, I was very interested in that sort of stuff. Then I discovered Lester Bangs mm-hmm. through being in a rock writing. And I think when Psychotic Reactions and Carbury are done came out, the first edition, that kind of tied in so many different interests and somehow made them coherent. Mm-hmm. Some kind of like, you know, I, I was into like psychotronic movies, I was into like, I was getting into garage punk, I was into psychedelia, getting into free jazz through psychedelia, through improvisation, through reading these fanzines. And suddenly Lester tied all these things together. Mm-hmm. And also, what I liked about Wester is he was really he was really romantic, and I was definitely romantic, and, I, and at that point, so it really tied in with me coming out of science fiction, getting into music, discovering girls, feeling romantic, reading books, trying <laughs> to drink whiskey, or oh, I didn't even like it, <laughs> travelling into Glasgow, meeting arty arty chicks, and falling in love with them, and yeah. so it really became like that became like I was going to say the soundtrack to my youth because I, it's funny because I do think of Wester bands just like music. I think the big inspiration from Wester is that he I can enjoy reading him as much as I can enjoy listening to the records that he wrote about yeah. so Wester really became like a really good friend of mine I really thought that I knew him I would talk about him like I knew him like ah oh, Wester said this or I remember Wester said that I mean I can still quote that book verbatim it meant so much to me and, and I started writing based on that inspired by Wester and inspired by these fanzines and I started my own fanzine that was my first thing I ever got published it's called Firm and Free it came out in like 1987 me and a guy called Robert and we wrote pieces on like Pussy Galore the Marine Girls um, Beat Hartman just, mm-hmm. just kind of like any sort of weird, the Vaseline's Drop Assistance just all the stuff that was happening at the time we, we photocopied that and gave it out at gigs and sold it and that's still very many I mean I had that box somewhere to throw out at some point I still got a couple of copies but that was a big deal for me but then I, I just knew I wanted to be a writer for life I didn't want to do anything else I've never really held down a job mm-hmm. I've had some I've had some small jobs and really like, like I worked in a shoe shop I was a postman and I worked in a menswear store for like one day mm-hmm. before getting fired because <laughs> <laughs> I've never really had a job and I really wanted to be a writer at all costs and I wanted to be a romantic idea of a writer where you just write you don't work some fucking job and you struggle and you starve and mm-hmm. so I began writing away to uh, um, I saw David that's what I need excuse me that's all. Um, so I discovered this magazine called Spiral Scratch was a monthly music zine it's kind of focused with kind of post-punk here and guess what that and uh, they just had an advert saying they were looking for writers so I was like fuck it I sent away a couple of reviews I can't remember what it was and they published it and the next thing I knew they didn't really acknowledge it they just published it and then they sent me a box of records to review. I mean, I can still remember that day. It was fucking amazing. <laughs> I could not believe it. I was, I was like five, three records. 
and I was like, oh wow, this is it. This, you know, I'm living mm-hmm. the Whisper Bang's life. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really exciting. So then I wrote for that. It folded quite soon afterwards. And then the staff started up a news, like a fold out newspaper thing, a wee bit like NME, called NX Press. Mm-hmm. And, and they asked me if I wanted to go and write for that. So of course I did, but then that folded pretty quickly. And then, I don't know how it happened, I got a job with Melody Maker. I ended up writing for Melody Maker. Yeah. And uh, at that time, my girlfriend got a job as the producer of the John Peel show. Oh, so she was in class because she had to move to London to take up the job. And we just split up. But just the thought of her leaving and going to London made me think, oh, we should better get back together or she's leaving. And I should never go back together. But I did, then I went to London. And the good things happened about it because I got to London and I, I'd written a piece on uh, a, a compilation, a Japanese site called Cosmic Kirushin Monsters. Came out and like, it was compiled by like. Trevor Man Wearing was part of it and I can't remember it was, it was a good compilation Mid, this is around about again maybe 1995 and I reviewed it for uh, Melody Maker and they ran a picture of KJ Hino mm-hmm. and I got a phone call on my, on my phone one morning on Mansion Machine in London I just moved to London from Tony Harrington who was the editor of The Wire and he was just like oh, I saw your uh, piece on KJ Hino and Melody Maker would you like to come away for The Wire mm-hmm. it was as easy and as strange as that yeah. what year was that? 1995 okay um, and what was amazing to me was I was reading The Wire but I just didn't think I was smart enough to write for it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it and I read it and I was like I'm going to pitch something yeah. this magazine one day but I never got around to it because I was too nervous to pitch into it so when they asked me to write I couldn't really believe it because I was also a big fan of a lot of the writers I mean I like Tony as an amazing writer and specifically Bibakov mm-hmm. I really loved Bibakov's writing and I was really kind of in awe of his writing and I I said this before, but I always remember when Einstein did Neubauten's House der Luga album came out. Maybe the ladies, I can't remember when it came out, but something like that. I remember like buying it, and first of all, it's got an engraving of a horse or a big massive cock in the front, so I'm like, this is wild. And then it's got Bibacoff's liners, which are really good. And I just remember being so blown away by Bibacoff's writing, and then I read like Tape Delay, which he wrote the intro for, which was a, had a really big influence on me, that intro, and I've probably ripped it off many times, the ideas of that are that was very inspiring to me so to get to, get to work alongside Biba Koff yeah. was fucking amazing and I always remember I mean we're, he's one of my best friends now so it's weird to think of it but um, I remember when I did my first cover story for The Wire which was Nurse for Wound which was the first interview Stephen Stapleton had really ever given mm-hmm. when he was still living in comparative obscurity in Ireland and I was on the top deck of a bus in London and I was reading it like so psyched I was having a cover story for that and Biba Koff got on the damn bus and sat down next to me and I didn't even see him and I was reading and he just sat down next to me and nudged me and he was like pretty good story huh <laughs> and I was like that was just like made my day I was like fuck this is it travelling the top deck of a bus with Biba Koff through London <laughs> talking about my cover story on Nursery Wound for The Wire it was just like where I, want everything that, it was where I wanted to be on every level Yeah, it was really exciting yeah. Yeah. well that, that's a nice segue I was going to ask you you know you are really at this stage probably most uh, probably commonly associated with, with The Wire magazine right and um, what, what do you feel like The Wire still offers? You know, there, there's so many web-based publications out there and blogs, what have you. What do you think that The Wire continues to offer um, to its readers that some of these other outlets don't provide, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that's massively important about The Wire is the standard of writing is very high. Oh, yeah. That's why I said when I first was reading that, I didn't know if I was smart enough to write for it. Um, so I know for a fact I spoke to our people about that, like Edwin Pouncey and things and when you write for The Wire 
you really try hard, you need to turn in something that's of a really high standard. The standard of writing is generally very high. The editorial is so thorough mm-hmm. and so demanding. They don't let a half-assed, unthought-through comment mm-hmm. get in the paper on any level. So I think the process of editing and the, the rigorous standards that The Wire has means it's head and shoulders above most blog writing. Most mm-hmm. blog writing is just some fucking guy in his room writing whatever old shit he wants. Right. Well, probably by chapping my shoulder most of the time. Mm-hmm. The Wire doesn't allow that. It's not that like you get petty. It's not really into the cult of personality, although there are writers associated with it. Um, so I think it's, it's got a very demanding style. And I think there's a level of rigour and in the writing and a standard writing that doesn't exist anywhere else mm-hmm. I mean I've written for every music magazine in the UK you could name Melody Maker Enemy Uncut Mojo nothing comes close to the standards of the wire or the standard right. writing in the wire I mean it's an absolute disgrace what those other magazines get away with but I mean to this day I've written for them long enough I can I, I, although I say they're very rigorous it's also a place of great freedom incredible freedom I get to write about what I want and how I want and that's incredible and the most incredible thing about it is, is this is a magazine which is available in newsagents and high street stores you know I walk in the newsagent at the corner of my street and the wire is on the racks next to all this, oh, this bullshit you know, I, mean, I take very little to do in mainstream media I, I, don't, I could care less and I think it's incredible to see the wire in that context right. so when you put someone interesting on the cover like I was on tour with the Dead Sea I walk into my local newsagent and amongst all this crap there's the there's Dead, Dead Sea. Sea on the damn cover <laughs> Yep. I still think it's amazing it's like a little Trojan horse a little cultural contagion mm-hmm. that somehow still manages to function and infiltrate mainstream modes mm-hmm. and I think it's quite incredible and feel really proud of it and I think it's more important than ever in the face of the bo- of blogs mm-hmm. I mean it's a controversial thing to say but I'm not very much into the, the democratisation of culture in any way I think it, it lowers standards rather than raises them and I think everyone's a critic, blah blah blah. Everyone's got access to a blog. Everyone can post their opinion. There's just not very interesting, much interest in writing there. Mm-hmm. There's not much rigor. There's not much thought. And, and just I'm I'm old school. I mean that's why I'm saying I'm like I'm a romantic writer. I, I believe in like dipping a pen in your damn vein and writing <laughs> in blood. You know I don't believe in like sitting home and making some wee snarky comment on fucking Twitter. I don't. I, I just I don't take anything to do with the internet. It doesn't appeal to me. It has to be print. Otherwise, I can't be bothered even lifting my finger to it, you know. So, it's still a print magazine. I know there's a digital version. I, I get it, obviously, as a writer, but I, I never read it. I, I couldn't read it. I just, I don't get. I don't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't appeal to me. Right. Maybe I'll lie in the bath with it. You know what I mean? Or something. <laughs> you know. So, um, I think the wire is still absolutely vital, and I still think the best writers who write about music write for the wire. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I that or try to write for the wire. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, at various points over the past decade and beyond, you've you've written these very detailed articles uh, that have analyzed and really kind of put your finger on the pulse of these many movements mm-hmm. that have taken shape over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was you know free folk, hypnagogic mm-hmm. pop, mm-hmm. even your book, book uh, England's Hidden Reverse, mm-hmm. in, in many respects. Uh, first, I guess, and this kind of ties in with what we were just talking about. Given the here today, gone tomorrow nature of online culture, you know that's so intertwined with music today. Uh, does it seem like any sort of like legitimate mini movements? Uh, can, can they take shape? Can they have any legs nowadays? I don't know if that's a, a well, poorly I think, worded. But. Well, I mean, I think it relies on just... Yes, I do, because I think it relies on the strength and vision of individual thinkers. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, you mentioned hypnagogic pop. I mean, that purely came out of like a dialogue between me and the ideas of music of James Ferraro and Spencer Clark. Mm-hmm. Those guys really inspired me when I met them. It was really magical. And I think between us... They started doing music. I started writing about it. They started doing music inspired by the writing. I started doing writing inspired by the music, <laughs> and it became this. We sort of created this thing. And I riffed on some ideas that James had, and I, then we had this feedback, and we we, we kind of just created it. But it was definitely something that was happening. It was de- it was very nascent at that point. But I could definitely see in James and Spencer just completely original thinkers, mm-hmm. an amazing original music. So, and. The, I'd like to think that we'll always be original thinkers and one of so I think yes definitely it's a question of finding these people and somehow trying to articulate and make some context for what they're doing mm. I mean and it's a fine balance because I mean I mean I'm very between two schools and I'm, I'm very wary of uh, I've no real interest in cultural criticism I don't really give a fuck <laughs> you know I, I'm not very I'm not interested in academic analysis but at the same time I hate anti-intellectualness as well I hate so I'm kind of between two stools. I think a lot of UK rock writing is very has, a, has an agenda which is more about social critique than music, and tends to be quite West Wing, Virgin or Marxist, or and then I think a lot of American journalism tends to be anti-intellectual, Dumbo and kind of tough guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm neither of those, but I'm somewhere in between them. Mm-hmm. I don't like the sort of cult, I don't think you should use music as a hook to hang sort of cultural analysis on also that's the reason why most writers write about more mainstream music because you can't hang a lot of cultural critique on a super obscure CDR that's right. and wasting 20 copies mm-hmm. you know because what does it say about the culture at large so it's harder so you've got to write about the music you've got to write about what they're doing sonically or their ideas and most writers don't want to do that and don't have the vocabulary for that so um, they fall back in cultural critique but I think about what American writers is just like it's just vacuous. It's just Dumbo prose. It's like uh, <laughs> hamburger. It's sub Lester, but Lester had a lot of heart. I don't think it's getting the heart. I think it's post Meltzer in a way. And I, I mean, I was a fan of Meltzer when I was young, but these days I, I, have, I really have very little time for Richard Meltzer and and the the the, the, the type of criticism that he spawned. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately it conveys no information whatsoever. You know, it's just a sort of very dull kind of circle jerk. And also, I just think it's a, it's there's a cynicism to it. And as they get older, you start to see they're just a bunch of cynical old guys. Mm-hmm. And I think this has infected a lot of, of US rock criticism. But uh, and getting back to your point, yes, I do think... We have, a lot of people have this debate, I mean, like... Is there a, does, it, does the underground exist anymore in the way that it existed in the 90s, say? Or, yeah, yeah. And yes, I do. I do think it does. It just exists, funnily enough, although I'm talking about the democratisation of culture. 
think it exists even further off the map than it used to. Mm-hmm. In the 1990s and things like that, there was like, the underground was amazing and it was quite hard. You had to make the effort of writing away. You had to go to a weird shop in a weird area. Mm-hmm. You had to like f- the fun of working in a discography of an artist or things. It was a genuine initiation. Yeah. That is lacking. It has been devalued in terms of that. I think the real weirdos are still operating completely off the map. They don't tend to have a band camp. You know, I know a lot of people do, and some interesting people do have their music online, but I still think there are weirdos out there. And luckily for me, because I'm quite well known as champion weirdos, they tend to get in touch. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right, they don't, and I have a thing where, like, I don't know, I don't look at band camps. I, I can't even, I don't even know how to fucking download a digital file. <laughs> I'll say to Heather, can, can you do if I need to? Yeah. But if anyone gets in touch, I normally say, send me something physical. Right. And another reason I say that is because, like, you know, if you believe in your shit enough, put it the fuck out yeah. if you put it out I'll probably take it a wee bit more seriously mm-hmm. because I think like self-publishing and DIY is the ultimate uh, gauge of artistic seriousness you're not waiting for somebody else to legitimise it you're saying I believe in this so much I'm putting it out right. and I guess that's why James Ferraro's CDRs were amazing I mean he was a, he was a possessed he was making those records 24 hours a day he couldn't <laughs> right. stop himself you know he, he would write to me and he would say oh you'd write me a quick mail and then he's like I need to go the demons are calling me he just couldn't <laughs> stop and that and that was amazing. That was that was how serious those yeah. guys are, and that's still a gauge for me. Yeah. You know. Do Do you see, uh, being that you do get so much stuff, are there certain like unique ripples of activity right now that you see taking shape uh, in the underground? I mean, internationally. Um. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things at the moment, definitely, is Australia. What's happening in Australia? Mm-hmm. I mean, my favourite band at the moment are probably my nana. Yeah. I mean, they completely floored me. I saw them out of nowhere and they had that magical thing that James and Spencer had. They reminded me of the skaters. <coughs> I don't mean to sound like them, but they just had this magical otherworldly energy to them. Mm-hmm. And just had the ability to, uh, this alchemical power to transmute the most basic ingredients and uh, just magical life affirming music. Yeah. But Australia in general was that. I mean, we, we I toured with, played drums with Jandek. Went tours and we toured Australia, and we went when we played Brisbane. All these bands came out, all these musicians came out, and that I came back from Australia like totally fired up on Australian underground. Particularly Brisbane was where the most, it was the most interesting for me. Like we had a party at the hotel after the show, and there was like Blank Realm, uh, Kitchen's Floor, Leighton Craig, um, Mel, so emotional about the rainbow and and. Uh, Matt Errol who runs like Breakdance to Dawn yep, fucking yep. amazing label again yep. incredible stuff and they were all there and it was really mind blowing to see the level of creativity <coughs> it was also weird because <coughs> coming from the outside you think it's a unified scene but again he also scams and there's factions because Leighton said to me having all these people in one room is really weird and unusual <laughs> you know and I know what it's like Glasgow there's bitchy scene politics in every small town but, kind of, but taking a step back it just seems so creative and exciting I think Matt Errol and Breakdance to is a good example Again, someone who is completely off the map, right? And just uses whatever is at hand. Somebody always tell me that we, we try to go to his house, Joe Stern from Sky Needle, another, another good one, tried to take us to where Matt lived, but he wasn't in at the time. And they said it's like above a semi abandoned build, I could be romanticising this, but in an area where it's just used car lots, he's simply got holes in his roof. And, and someone went to visit him and like they were trying to get some um, break dance the dawn material. 
And so he just houses can trash trash down. He just like one from Shrew, finds a CDR lying under a piece of newspaper, <laughs> burns it straight away, wraps it in a piece of crap, and hands it to him. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. People would say that's kind of deep. That's to me, that's more special than a factory made CD. Even just seeing the effect, pick up it's a crap off the floor. Right? <laughs> to me, there's something more special about that. And I always remember, and this really does sum up my attitude compared to a lot of uh, rock writers. I remember Simon Reynolds made this comment about me, um, where I was talking about Fidel Confine, which was a group that Andrew Chalk was in. Uh, they did something Broken Flag, and they were quite the new blockaders. Later, used a lot of their, the sound works on some of their records. And I, mean, I just mentioned what the, you know it would be great if some of that early Fidel Confine stuff that exactly on a cassette and very limited copies would get released. And then Simon Reynolds, I don't look at blogs, but someone brought this to my attention on his blog, made some comment like, David Keenan's talking about a cassette, it was an addition of 25 copies, like, what next? <laughs> what about the cassette my brother made when he was 12 years old? Is that what we're going to be writing about next? Is that, how ridiculous? <clears throat> I was like, I'll check out your brother's jams. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I mean, the idea of it's a cassette and 12 copies makes it culturally irrelevant. Are you kidding me? I'm listening to the music, what the hell does it sound like? But this is the argument for these guys, like, how can I talk about the cultural relevance of a cassette that only exists in 12 copies? I'm not interested, I'm interested in the weirdos and the one-offs and this strange urge that made them create this crazy music that had to get out, that he made an addition of 12 copies. To me that's fascinating, that's yeah. what I am into. That's the story for me right there, you know? Right.
ago in that collateral damage column that that's that ran in the wire for a period of time yeah you know it gave writers musicians this op- opportunity to share their views on you know the, the changing nature of music and music distribution and, and what have you mm-hmm. <clears throat> you wrote a piece about how underground music the underground music world needed to to create new and perhaps more intimate ways to engage its audience and this is kind of piggybacking on what you were just talking about you know from limited handmade uh, releases impromptu performance and retail spaces do you kind of see that as being still the, the direction that we're heading in like for, for for an underground and again maybe this ties back to like movement but I know it's not these are it, that's not necessarily the right way to frame that but yeah I mean definitely I think it's absolutely vital and I find I find myself doing it I mean, <coughs> one of the reasons, I mean, we have um, a co-owner of Volcanic Tongue, which is a record shop and a mail order based in Glasgow, and we recently got, like, a new space. It's not huge, but it's bigger than our old space, with a small raised stage at one end. So what we immediately began doing is, well, we can present music here, because a lot of music does fall through the cracks. I mean, Mad Nana's a case in point. They were coming, they were touring, they were coming to Scotland. I got in touch with the, pro- the promoters that mean that means like indie or vaguely underground promoters in Glasgow no one had heard them and no one wanted to put a show on with them and this consistently happens that certain type of artists fall through the cracks there's no place for it to be presented so 
we step up to the plate and now we do shows in our tiny space in Glasgow mm. for bands that can't get sh- otherwise would not be able to do a show in Glasgow right. and it's great it's rammed the atmosphere is amazing we've also started presenting like talks film shows and just being a platform for like weirdo left field culture but otherwise wouldn't have a platform in general and I, I, I think more and more now funnily enough that's more an American tradition than a UK tradition we still get people we're not in a, a space you would associate a shop being in. We're in a strange space. Mm-hmm. People in the UK still find that weird. They walk in and they've walked into a fucking alien <laughs> spacecraft. And they're looking around and I'm like, well, it says outside it's a record shop. We walked in, it is a record shop. Why are you acting so weird? Because it's an unofficial space. People feel weird when they come in. Mm-hmm. But there's more of a history than in, in the US. Mm-hmm. We're taking over weird spaces and using them for cultural places to put on events. But more and more we're seeing that idea in the UK. But you're even seeing people like, like Aaron Dillaway is a good point. He's oh, a yeah. record store in his house. Yeah, you know? op- opening it up. Yeah. Like, by a point when you're you know. finding things that rents are too high, bands can't get gigs anymore, it's hard to survive as a musician. Your art and music is stolen, and the thieves retain the moral high ground. You need to create your own culture and your own kind of network mm-hmm. that can support this shit. And that's a very big part of me as well. I mean, I do. Th- I, that terrible phrase I walk it like I talk it I, 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 I don't just write about the music like, I, used, I play it I put it on I support it I, I take labels I write about I write I probably write about 10,000 words a week just on new releases on Volcanic Tongue right. never mind my critical writing so I'm an, I'm, I'm an evangelist when it comes to this and my entire life is based around trying to create platforms for this weirdo DIY art to thrive and survive because it was so important and transformative to me and I think it's still important to have that option culturally that option that option of being weird that option of making art and music that is purely dictated by the awkward contours of your own being and nothing else mm-hmm. and I want to be able to have a platform I want to be, be a lightning rod for that also I like being around weirdos I like strange people I don't <laughs> like ordinary people and I mean at every level of my life I don't just mean music I, I'm moving a lot of different circles because I'm allergic to ordinariness, I can't stand ordinary shit. I can't stand suburban life. I can't stand nine to five jobs. I just, I, I'm allergic to it. So I try to create a culture around myself. So I'm always surrounded by inspirational, odd sure. people. And luckily enough, now I, I, I am a lightning rod for that, and they do tend to come to me, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> it's not always great. Sometimes I'm genuinely crazy, but <laughs> on the whole, that's it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, you you had mentioned uh, in an interview a few years back um, that your book England's Hidden Reverse that, that covered the histories of Coil, Current Ninety Three, and Nurse with Moon that you were trying to to quote situate the groups in a much more interesting experimental outsider musical tradition um, which I can honestly say for me that helped a lot for uh, understand those groups and appreciate yeah. their work for sure are, are there other pockets of art, artists out there that you feel are sort of deserving of a similar yes. cultural reevaluation yes, of, the, of this vision uh-huh. I've, I've thought about it but I'm very conflicted on my feelings about it for, for years now I have a rough draft of a book called the title is Crime Calls for Night and it's a kind of a follow up thing with in Reverse what it does is it, it, it tracks the trajectory of the UK underground from say White House up to Richard Young's Vibra Cathedral Orchestra mm-hmm. um, Astro Navigations 
to me that's the next phase of the unfolding of industrial culture my big thing is for me personally I'm not much of a punk especially not UK punk it doesn't interest me on any level I, I don't go along with that the mainstream rock narrative that UK punk was ground zero mm-hmm. I could give a shit I, I never listen to UK punk you wouldn't fuck me damned no I never play the pistols anything. I, I don't have any interest in it to me punk did not deliver rock music from musicians quite the opposite but industrial music did mm-hmm. to, one, the most important band for me almost historically and culturally in the UK is probably Throbbing Gristle they genuinely delivered on punk's field promise to liberate music from musicians right. You know, you listen to the Sex Pistols record, they're playing bar chords and they're playing totally in time and you need to learn how to play to be able to play a Sex Pistols track. Mm-hmm. And you listen to Heathen Earth, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. it's a different story. Yeah. So Throb and Gristle, for that is the ground zero for me in terms of the UK. Yeah. And I think that its, it's influence still can be felt. I think it, it started... I mean, for, for me, right, for me, there's two two people in making underground music for me in my mind. Lou Reed and Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. Put the two of them together, and that's exactly where I'm at. <laughs> you know, and I think like Thro- uh, Throbbing Gristle, you had the industrial, immediate industrial folly, which England's had in reverse sort of tracks, but they were also again like a like a lightning rod for strange culture, mm-hmm. not just contemporary manifestations, but they sort of uh, that's why I call it England's had in reverse. They went, they reversed, and went back to these people that had been sort of uh, denied a part in sort of English cultural narrative and they sort of restored these very interesting fi- figures and they became a source of alternate information they were so important in that mm-hmm. in fact so you could find out about Arthur Crowley and the OTO you could find out about Austin Austin the Spare System Specialization all these alternative sources of information they were very important and I think that from Throb and Gistle, the immediate industrial fallout that then you had the genesis of the, of the UK underground mm-hmm. and you get fight, there were linking figures between the two people like Matthew Bauer who played in Pure yeah. Skullfire and was part of Broken Flag and played at the Equinox event all these kind of things but then went on and this rock underground that then tied up with later people like Richard Jones and, and people like Neil Campbell um, so I think there's definitely a very interesting story to be told in terms of the next un- the next unfolding of, of the right. UK underground. But I mean, it, it sounds silly, but one of my big problems is that noise music in general tends to attract sociopaths, <laughs> and, and I, I have definitely been on the brunt of some of that. Just attracting people who have massive chips who just have problems yeah. and I understand why because noise I always think noise like sort of um, frees or loosens sort of previously repressed personas by literally jamming the signals and that's why around about a lot of noise like White House and like Throbbing Gristle you then get people interested in uh, uh, genocide and serial killing and that's why the, the book's called Crime Calls for Night though because night this night time you, you need to cover a night for crime and this comes back to what I was talking about with Biba Koff his essay was very influential for me in Take Away because his, he had a thesis which I've gone on to elaborate at length um, that pop music is um, is the 95 you know it's, mm. it's, the, it's the light it's the, it's the soundtrack to 95 consumption whereas noise is music's nighttime. Yeah, and that's why, and, it, and that's why it loses all these repressed personas. So the book is crime called for night, but what literally what cultural crime called called for like a cover of noise, if you like. So then you could investigate all these things that you'd somehow loose like jamming the signals that noise does. Yeah, and it is fascinating. It's very interesting. 
but you need to deal with a bunch of sociopaths as well because <laughs> the, the flip side of that is you do get a bunch of adolescent crazies you do get a bunch of serial worshipping gimps you do get a bunch of neo-nazi crazies none of which I want to involve myself with on any fucking level so as I'm putting this book together I'm fascinated by some of it but I'm touching on dealing with people who are actual sociopaths who I don't want to deal with right, right. so I'm very tied it's a difficult book I'm so fascinated by the culture but there's aspects of some of that are so important and so nothing to do with me yeah. that I find it difficult so will I ever complete it I don't know we'll see yeah. I don't know it's, it's ongoing and I am fascinated by it but I'm kind of repelled by it at the same time I want to tell the story but I don't want to become a lightning rod for noise sociopaths right, right. I just don't want to and I was very wary of that even when English had the reverse mm-hmm. I had no dealing whatsoever with Death in June yeah. a group I absolutely despise and I, and I think they fucking they sound like the Pet Shop Boys <laughs> not, not, I, don't, I don't just abhor their, their imagery and their politics I think they're a bunch of cheese balls you know and I, I know that, like, a lot of people associate those groups and of course Kurt 93 were quite involved with Death in June but I didn't see out to a definitive biography of that entire scene I tell you about what I found interesting and what I liked and I wanted to separate it from neo-Nazi Eurogoths yeah. you know I have no interest in that apocalyptic folk scene all this European crap the, 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 the dregs that was on Worm Serpent I couldn't care less mm-hmm. I wanted to put them in a new context three nursery windows were seen by the nursery window last, came out of crowd rock mm-hmm. you know they were part of an experimental tradition coil as well so I wanted to rescue those bands from that bullshit right. that horrible scene I can't stand and of course I got some hostilities from Death and June fans mm-hmm. you know I don't care I did approach Douglas P and I did have a couple of questions but he sort of took the moral high ground and he called me oh Mr Professional Music Journalism and all, all, all that crap and so I just backed off I didn't even want to speak to him in the first place but I thought I'd give him the benefit of the doubt I'm glad he's not in the book no interest <laughs> I mean to me I always say Death in June it's Pet Shop Boys does Sven Hassel you know
Jersey, safe, takes money, and a sentimentalist attempt to it's the worst of all the rest of these print fuckface using bandit models. It's not the women I'm looking at, or at least it's not what I'm stopping at. Such truly ugly women with these Japanese laws. Ah, such more fucking thugs and models, gamers with cash and cocky hard continue to pay. Those painted barrels are you dogs are promised me. A control and dissecting mania, still unhealthy mania, stumbles under cows, which your battery and is capable of being planned.
I know you're writing another book right now, or have one ready. Weren't you doing something with uh, John Olson? Yeah, I was. I was. Okay. I, 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 I never completed it. I'm, I'm too busy. I took, I took on too much. I was unable to complete it. John and I had, had came up with a book. We talked about this for years. And I think maybe it was Alan Licht. It was like, you guys should write a book together. So we came up with this book called Life is a Ripoff. Oh, yeah. And he's doing that. Yeah, right? he's, he's finished. He's just about finished. And what we were going to do was going to review one record every single day. Yeah. Which proved just too... I mean, I'm... It's finished that novel at the time. I was re-editing English in reverse. I'm writing for The Wire. I'm writing for Volcanic Tongue. I, I could not keep up right. the regime that John is able to keep up writing-wise. So I did end up doing two to three months of journals. And I didn't agree at all. I could not... I fell so far behind I could not keep up. So I mm-hmm. threw the towel and said, John, you do the book. Yeah. So I had like three months of it. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Clint Simonson from The Style, he's going to print it. Right, right. And I mean, it was, the whole point is, life is a rip-off. We're going to write about, again, things, records that fell through the crack. Yeah. People, failures. People that never succeeded. Yeah. And the, covers, the cover is a really great idea. Is I don't know if John will still go ahead with this, but the plan cover was the famous photograph of Muhammad Ali both, both John and I box for both boxers and we're very in boxing um, so the colour was going to be Muhammad, that famous photo of Muhammad Ali standing over his opponent yeah. <laughs> once he's knocked out but it was going to be hand drawn like by a child yeah oh that's cool so like life is a rip off this hand drawn victorious Muhammad Ali yeah. really crude kind of outsider folk style it's, you know that would have been really nice yeah. so when it comes out it will be great I don't know what I'll do with my entries Maybe I'll publish them somewhere, but yeah, I was supposed to be doing that book. But I, I just take one too much, and I write every day as it is. Yeah. But you do have another book coming out have, sooner that that's finished, right? I have a novel coming out, yeah, that's right, that's completely finished. It's called The Comfort of Women. I wrote it, like, a, a, I wrote a, a novel, I spent three years writing a novel, every night, and then I destroyed it. <laughs> I sat down and I thought, this has to go. It is tough to work for three years to yeah. stop and destroy something, but that is the, the that is the initiatory process of writing a book. And then I started again. I wrote another book, and this became the Comfort of Women, which is coming out. But now I say, if you want to be, if you want to write, if you want to be a writer, you want to write a book, you want to write a novel, write a novel, destroy it, and write another novel. If you can do that, yeah. you've got a chance of being a writer. Well, you need to be able to do that. That's what it taught me. Let something go. And yeah, you need, to just, you need to work for three years non-stop on nothing and see nothing for it. Mm-hmm. Not only that, actively destroy it, walk away and start again. Mm-hmm. Then you're getting close to maybe finding your voices are real. That's certainly how it worked for me. So, um, yeah, Stranger Tractor are publishing it, which is great for me because I'm a huge fan of it. They're one of the best independent publishers. Mm-hmm. And the sort of stuff they publish, like 
Steve Moore and Alan Moore and Baron Corvo and Phil Baker's biography of Austin Elizabeth Spear. These are all esoteric interests I share a lot, so I'm very happy mm-hmm. for it to be on. And the book is kind of like, has a lot to do with magic um, and music and strange people living on the absolute fringes, putting a story together from different people's perspective or this one strange magical person who may or may not be the same person who come has a different impact at a different period in various persons' lives and so it's made up of like first person accounts of this who may or may not be the same person who may be completely fictitious and who then seems to become more like a historical archetype even than an actual human being it's all accounts of the transform of influence this person has in various people's lives and of course it touches on art, music, sure. French characters, mm-hmm. all my when, when, is, when does that do well? Autumn 2014. Okay.
was a boy, a very young enchanting boy. He won a wedding, a wedding, and then one day, There was a boy, a very young enchanting boy. He won a wedding, a wedding, and then one day we are
you are now about to witness the strength of Street Military. The shit you're listening to is sponsored by Mad Motherfuckers Against Drunk Driving. What's up, dude? What's up, Steve? What's up, How? What's up, CO? What's up, Third? Country Hill and all them boys down there at that end, you know what I'm saying? All them boys in King's Gate, Pearl Homes, you know what I'm saying? Foxwood, the black KKT Bone Zoo. All them boys down there, what's up? I'm your number one suspect, cause I wear black lows. Till my hat back and choke on weed smoke. Call me, call me a ghetto thug. I say, I say, damn you. I'ma, I'ma live my life how I, I want to. I'm out there bad like a madman, a savage. Can't manage without doing some kind of damage. I'm in the ghetto street spotlight. Suspect, 
snatching gold, stealing clothes out of stoves before they open their door. I'm, I'm struggling, thinking crime gonna help. I brought a child in this world when I can barely feel damn self water and bread. Who gonna keep the kid fed? Jackie ain't dead because of my little monkeys. Me and Joe at your door about four o'clock. Whoever answered the door gonna get robbed the shot. I see hot wasn't made for the minimum wage. Therefore, I grabbed my gauge and got my ass paid. I see hot wasn't made for the minimum wage. Therefore, I grabbed my gauge and got my ass paid. I got popped by a cheek at the corner store. Staring at me from the time I walked through the door. He thought I ran out of store with a bill. Shot me, shot me in my back. And I was dead in a year. Said I'll be dead in a year. I won't see 21 come. And at the rate I'm going now, G Rap will be my mother's only son. Said I'd never be nothing, just a punk in the pen. But I get more money, spend that and get paid again Left my books to be a crook, left my job just to rob How you gon' tell the flea how to live when times get hard? Be myself, so I did, I need help I sold drugs, cause all I ever really knew were crooks and thugs I was down from the heart, crank your car till it start Take it to the back of my hood and strip the parts Every time I seen a cop, I got a bad thought like breaking them down the middle like I had thoughts And your life for tomorrow, it wasn't no guarantee Cause ain't nobody got a lifetime warranty And I know them fools sick that we still here And gonna be living the blowout our candles So, you know, I've seen firsthand how difficult it's been for record stores to survive in this day and age how has Volcanic Tongue, Tongue your uh, your record shop, been able to maintain itself for what be you know close to ten years now? Yeah, it's coming up for tenth anniversary. That's correct. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, one reason is because I mean, I'm certainly not. I'm no, I'm no businessman. Certainly not. I don't have a feel for it. I don't care. A balance in the books is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I can't do accounts. Heather Lee, my partner. My wife and my partner in Volcanic Tongue is amazing. She is so talented. She's taught I me. Mean, she comes from the States, but she now understands the UK tax yeah. system inside out. Mm-hmm. Better than me. She's great at sitting down and working out things, doing things, incredibly hard working. She's got a real vision for what we do. But also, we're just, we're, we're, we're full-time believers. Mm-hmm. We're doing it because it's a culture that we love. Yeah. And I think anyone else, if you're doing it for the money or trying to make a business or trying to, like, you know... You would have packed it in years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it still because there's still culture out there that I want to support. There's still new records coming out that I think are amazing. There's still musicians out there that are so exciting. And I think we definitely help to give them a platform. Another reason I, I think we've been so successful is that we have a very deliberate aesthetic. Volcanic Tongue has an aesthetic. Right. You know, if you, if you buy from Volcanic Tongue, you you have certain tastes mm-hmm. that we articulate, so we're very very specific. Also, we don't stop anything that we don't like because mm-hmm. I'm incapable of deceit or 
saying, giving something a good review, when I don't like it. Right, right. It's cost me a lot of friendships over the years and a lot of hostilities. Mm-hmm. But it would it be maybe politically expedient mm-hmm. to say something different, but I can't do that. Right. So, so my policy is, I could not honestly sell you something that I thought was a bunch of bullshit. I just couldn't do it. It's just not in me. So I can only stock stuff I like because I review everything. Everything that we right. stock I, gets a review from me. Um, so I have to love it. So we listen to everything as it goes and we stock it based on what I really like it. So it genuinely is a labour of love. And it's, it is a huge labour. It's a, it's a massive job. I work on it every single day. As I say, I probably write about 10,000 words a week just on right. Just on that. But I think we have two functions. Probably get more into. We're, we're definitely like a, we're a place. I know the, the, the lightning rod comes in. People are attracted to our shop, or maybe a wee bit more interested in other people. On a day to day basis, it's great work in there. You meet so many strange people. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. But also, the Volcanic Club newsletter, I think, is a weekly newspaper that right, lets right. you know what's happening in the underground and what releases are. We round up everything that's interesting on a week by week basis. Yeah. You know, so I think it is an amazing information source, mm-hmm. and I'm really proud of that. I mean, we have tens of thousands of subscribers. Yeah. We don't have tens of thousands of customers. <laughs> right. We do have a lot of customers, we have a lot of very loyal customers, but um, we have a lot of readers, and people do use it as a newsletter, I know that, and I think that's cool. I like that, and that is part of its function. But my writing for, you see, it's very different from the type of writing I do for The Wire. Right, right. Very different. And, it's spontaneous it's written very very quickly yeah. it don't critically engage the way I do in the wire I mean when I'm going to write a piece for the wire I sit down and I spend a hell of a lot of time right. these things are written very spontaneously they're a little bit more throwy I don't expect them to be memorialised in print but they're, they have a, they're functional they're there for a reason they are a newsletter they update you what's going on and they give you a quick glimpse of what things sound like they allow me maybe a little bit goofier in my writing and things like that as well so it's kind of fun but it's a, I write in a very different style for Volcanic right. because it has a function so I think we've thrived because of that also people trust their tastes we can stock something that no one's ever heard of and sell a ton of it if we contextualise it and like it I don't know many shops that can do that none well many small shops can do it once we've contextualised it yeah. then other people stock it and people like it so we have the ability people trust us enough that if I highly recommend an out of nowhere release people will buy it but I'm very careful not to recommend anything that I don't think is amazing because I know people trust my opinion and I know people will get into something if, if on my say if I'm behind it enough so I'm very very careful never to recommend anything that I don't think is absolutely yeah. amazing because I don't want people to say what the fuck is this guy talking about <laughs> you know so I, I do I think we have built up a great degree of trust and reliance on, for turning people on to new music so I'm still I mean we still I still do listen I don't listen to every digital thing that gets sent because I care less and right. I can't even download it so it doesn't matter but I, I listen to every physical piece of product that we get sent sure. and I have discovered amazing shit through just being submitted I mean off the top of my head Julius Ahmed Julius Ahmed oh, yeah. sent me his first CDR no context whatsoever going through a box of shit I stuck it on me and Heather like, wow yeah. shit it's good I just wrote them straight away I was like whatever I don't know whatever this person is but you'll take it yeah. we'll take the one you know so that's the one example and, and James Farrell was the same you know skiers I think we were the first people to stock skiers and, and even like emeralds I, I, I don't know we stocked emeralds before anyone else right. you know I mean I could go on and on and on Japanese stuff endless 
you know is is your shop I mean does the mail order really drive more so yes. than the, than the, the yes. store so yeah. yeah I mean we could just survive as a mail order literally. the shop does pay for itself yeah. and I think it's important to have a physical space yeah. I, I want to fight for having a record store and in an era where record stores are dying yeah. record stores still have a vital function they had a vital function for me for a start you get to handle this shit. I mean a lot of stuff we stock is handmade looks stunning visually amazing very tactile yeah. so you can't be able to see it and pick it up so right. people come into our shop they're always like it's kind of like visual overload so I was like wow look at all this shit because the walls are covered with like mm-hmm. weird old hand painted editions and, yeah. and also I mean I try as much as I can with my reviews and they use it to turn people on but you can't beat me in a shop guys saying oh I like this well I like that way well check out this and let me play you a bit of this so that certainly happened for me in record shops going in and guys stick turning you on and saying yeah. oh, what about so I still like to do that I still like to have the physical contact mm-hmm. so, I mean, there's, there's, there's pluses and negatives the negative is being quite a well known writer and having written quite a lot of negative reviews as well people know where you are they can find you <laughs> so I'm, I'm more available than most writers yeah. which, which is just cool, cool. Yeah. fine I'm there I'm, I'm approachable when I'm there you can come and speak to me but it, it does have a negative side sometimes. Sometimes I wish I was a bit less available. Yeah. Right. You know? But I, I, at the same time, I kind of thrive on the negative very much. And I just see them as both manifestations of the same energy. Yeah. <coughs> I quite like it. Yeah. I do like... I am always a bit disappointed when I open the wire and there's not a letter complaining about me on the letters page. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, I'm kind of gutted. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I always say, where would the wire's letter page be without me? You know? <laughs> Downtown for some love and romance And I know I ain't nothing I ain't worth but a thin guy But if you put your heart in my hands I'm sure that I could change your mind I want to boogie with you Yeah, I want to boogie with you Some baby that your parents both agree And that is that they both have a deep distrust of me And your best friend Frankie Well I know your best friend Frankie wants to see me sink And I don't much blame him for that He gets so useless after so few drinks You know babe I wanna boogie with you I want to boogie with you Sister, she thinks that I'm a flop. Well, I 
kiss that you know that it's true I spend more time on the bottom than the top But tell your little sister I know she wants to give me a whirl But I don't have the time for it Wait till she's grown up and she's a woman Not a girl, don't you know I want to boogie with you Hey, I want to boogie with you I wanna boogie with you I wanna boogie with you, yeah Boogie with you That's going to bring our show to an end this week. I want to thank David once again for taking the time to sit down and chat with us up in Minneapolis, and also for taking the time to put together the playlist uh, that you heard throughout the show. I'd strongly encourage you to track down uh, those Jandek articles within The Wire, and all of David's writing for that matter in The Wire, uh, his books that he has, and also the writing that he does on Volcanic Tongue. Always insightful, always entertaining. But if you have any questions for me, uh, you can shoot me an email at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Otherwise, check back with us in a couple of weeks. We'll have a standard show with lots of new records, tapes, CDRs, what have you to play for you. And as always, thank you for listening.